Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. I'm glad that tickles you, Adam McAtee. Welcome to Pilates Elephants. <laughs> Thank you. That's a pleasure. Um, so uh, it's great to be here with you, Adam. Uh, just to begin, could you uh, just introduce yourself to to the listeners at home, or maybe you're not at home listening. Maybe you're out on a jog or driving in the car or at Pilates, whatever. But yeah, you know, introduce yourself to the listeners out in the world. Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Adam Akatee, and I'm a trainer for Breathe Education. I'm based in Southern California in the States. Um, I've been teaching Pilates for nearly 12 years, and I'm currently um, also a student of physical therapy, which is also known as uh, physiotherapy around the world. And uh, well, that was a very concise biography. Um, were, you, were, were you always a breathe education trainer, or did you do something else before that? Nah. No, no, my, I've been, well, I've been teaching for 12 years and, uh, my original training was, uh, back in what, 2009, I, I was trained in classical Pilates. And when I, when I actually started my teacher training, like first day, I had three hours of Pilates experience under my belt and decided it was a good idea to become a Pilates instructor. <laughs> like, it worked, uh, not recommended, but it worked. Uh, so I, you know, it was a good idea. What's that? Well, it turns out it was a good idea. Yeah, it was. It, it worked out really well. That was one way to learn. <laughs> um, so, no, I had, a, you know, I had an awesome experience. And in, in uh, my classical Pilates training, I learned Pilates uh, really well. You know, I, I, there, was some, there was always something like missing that I, I couldn't quite put my finger on. But I, I felt pretty comfortable with the Pilates uh, repertoire. And I, I, taught that, I taught classical Pilates for years. Uh, my, mo- my mother opened the studio and I, I just taught my private clientele out of her, her space for quite a while. And just like many things, like, you know, I'm teaching for a while and I, I just want to learn more and, and grow because I, I find myself just kind of like reciting what I learned in my teacher training, but not really knowing what it means. I just knew how to kind of regurgitate information. And, um, you know, I thought about getting a second Pilates certification that didn't work out. And so I ended up, um, going to university, which was a bit strange for me because I had, I had no, uh, I didn't have very much academic success, uh, prior to that in my life. And no one in my family has a college degree, but I decided to go anyways. And, um, along my journey, I think it, it took me like five years to get through the community college system here where I just kind of took boring classes uh, while teaching Pilates. And I still had these questions that I couldn't find answers to. And I went to a local university here called Cal State University of Long Beach. And I started to take really interesting classes. Um, I took classes like um, motor control and motor learning, uh, biomechanics, exercise physiology, strength and conditioning and the like. And I started to be um, confronted 
with, with concepts uh, that were in contrast to, to what I learned in Pilates school. And like, like a really easy example is queuing in which, uh, like the first day I sat in uh, motor learning class, uh, they put a paper, they put a research paper, which I was unfamiliar with research at the time. Uh, and it was on, uh, queuing and particularly an external focus of attention, which I'd never heard before. And it was explaining to me essentially that how I learned to communicate in Pilates school was not ideal in terms of teaching motor, uh, motor learning or teaching movement skills. And I was really, really uncomfortable because it really, I, it pulled me back into my imposter syndrome that I had like the first year of teaching that many of us go through. And I felt like I was just kind of doing, doing it all wrong because I was reading this paper, but I was in the studio doing the opposite of what it was telling me. And I went through that for, for quite a while. Um, and I started to delve into like, you know, teaching bigger group classes and things like that. And then I, one day I was walking on campus, you know, I'm off to some class and I, I turn on a Pilates podcast called Pilates and Filter with Jenna Safina. And I, I listened to these three girls from Australia that I never heard of before. Chloe Bunker, Cat Webb and Alice Scott, I believe is her last name. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and for the first time, and I heard Chloe, you know, um, mention the necessity of having research in Pilates because we really need to update the way we're, we're teaching. And I felt like that was a light bulb moment for me that we, I'm not alone in having this confrontation and that, that there's a, there's a way that we can, or there's a gap that needs to be filled. And you know, I hear of breathe education, I hear of you, and I, I hear other people in the Pilates community start to talk about things like the optimal theory of motor learning. And it really gave me that sense of permission to apply everything that I'm learning at university to my Pilates teaching. Um, as a result, I, I started to have more confidence in my teaching. I started to see different results and I started to notice, or I started to give myself permission to really stray away from what I originally was taught. Um, not in a dismissive way, but in just in a way of just being more informed. Like I understood how to tweak exercises. Um, and along this journey, I, uh, I had the fortunate experience of working for John Gary, you know, for a short amount of time. And <laughs> when I walked into the studio, I was like, oh my God, there's a Pilates reformer, and next to it, there's a weight rack. Yeah. And I've never seen these two, like, so close together. Right. And they, John, they weren't John Gary used to have a studio in uh, Long Beach, right, ne- right near. In yeah. Long Beach, now yeah, he's yeah. In, Now he's in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to John Gary. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to John. He's awesome. Uh, so he gave me an incredible opportunity. His studio was right next to the university. So it was great when I was studying exercise science. And these weren't, like, your baby weights. Like, they weren't, like, your, your like, highlighter green and pink waves like these were like you know 20 kilos or whatever i'm trying to do conversions in my head you know you got like 40 pound weight and i've just i just never saw that and i get assigned to teach a class called strength and reformer where we did sets on the reformer and we did sets off the reformer so we're doing like squats lunges push-ups lifting heavy weights over our head next to a reformer and then we go and we do like the long stretch series and we're just dripping in sweat and I've never, it was the first time I was able to really apply what I was learning in university to Pilates and it forever changed the way I teach um, Pilates and forever the way I teach you in movement. And it really just provided me permission 
um, to to apply evidence and, and strength training principles to Pilates. Um, fast forward a couple of years, pandemic happened, right? And we all <laughs> we all adjust, you know, in this industry to just teaching in different ways. Um, and through that, uh, one blessing was that a lot of Pilates went online, including breathe education. And um, I had the opportunity uh, to teach for breathe education, uh, even though the Pacific Ocean is between you and me. And now I find myself, um, you know, working um, as an evidence-based practitioner and a trainer for breathe education, uh, facilitating both the cert and the diploma of clinical Pilates. And here I am today. And here you are. And just a massive uh, moment of appreciation for John Gary for really just pioneering that just basically integration of strength training with Pilates Reformer um, because he was doing oh, yeah. it yeah, back in the day before anyone else was doing it. So, John Gary, yeah. you are a fucking legend. Oh, man. <laughs> I still have trauma from, like, how many springs he told me to put on my Reformer. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> that's, that's, that's really hard. <laughs> yeah, um, that I've done. So, all right. So what a great setup for our topic of conversation today, which is growing beyond your training. And so really, yeah. the you know, the, 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 I think, think the, the catalyst for this conversation or the genesis of this conversation is that you know, uh, this show, this podcast is all about, um, you know, busting the myths and and misconceptions that are common in the Pilates world and, you know, sharing evidence-based tools with people to become better instructors. And, you know, a lot of the times I think uh, I get, you know, I, I probably get like 20 to 40 DMs a day on, on Instagram uh, and a lot of them are from listeners to the sh- to the podcast, um, which I'm incredibly grateful for. I really love it when you guys reach out to me um, with constructive feedback or appreciation feedback or just your success stories or whatever. Um, you know, I love hearing from you. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot, of, I get a lot of people saying like, "Oh, right, you know, I, I'm kind of hitting this. Like, I I want to do it different." You know, I'm realizing there's a there's a different way of thinking, and I want to let go of some of these old beliefs that I've inherited, but I'm not quite sure how. You know, how do I move forward? Um, and so, you know, this this conversation, I think, you know, you've been through that journey. I've been through that journey as well. Um, yeah, being trained in a you know um, a fairly kind of rigid, dogmatic system. In my case, it was stop Pilates. In your case, classical. But you also did the club Pilates um, certification. Um, yep. And so, you know, we've both been through that process of that, you know, what you described of kind of question, first just like a vague feeling of disquiet and then like actively questioning, but feeling like I must be the idiot because no one else seems to be questioning this stuff. And then, <laughs> yeah. and, and then realizing like, oh no, it's not just me. You know, there are other people out there who feel the same. Yeah. And, and then finally, you know, we, you know, you and I have both come out of the closet and we're, you know, we're, you know, uh, running around metaphorically with sequin G-strings on, um, you know, happily uh, proclaiming ourselves as, you know, outed uh, evidence-based um, Pilates teachers. Um, uh, so, you know, but so I guess, you know, how can we 
let's talk through some of the ups and downs and the questions that people have you know, shared with you and shared with me about this journey to help people, I guess, you know, help other uh, folk who are, you know, on the same path. Yeah. Well, first part is that if you're unfamiliar with these concepts, it's not your fault. Right? You invested in a training program and, and you learned. And, and learning is just, um, it's a marathon. You know, it's not a sprint. And, and what I can say with, with an evidence-based practice is a prerequisite is cognitive agility and that evidence continue, you know, evidence will change. You know, as we learn more, uh, we change. And, and sometimes when we go to our original training, we have a lot of respect, you know, for the people that we learn from. And part of that respect, we end up wanting to like kind of honor that experience by continuing to teach that way. I learned knee stretches this way. I learned the order this way. So we continue to do it. And so it's really well intended. Um, and, but what I can say is that there's, there's always room to grow. And as we learn more, you know, we should be able to change the way we teach. And I think part of a, a big, a big uh, turning point can be recognizing that humans are not fragile in recognizing that they're actually anti-fragile in the sense that we're oftentimes taught a lot of alignment protocols from a biomechanistic point of view, meaning that we associate someone's alignment with their safety. We associate their alignment with injury prevention and the like. But if we're able to let go of some of that, we can allow our, not only our students, but ourselves to ton of freedom. Um, and part of that is just recognizing that we're working with humans. Um, and something such as uh, promoting autonomy and um, self-efficacy can be a lot more important than if someone's knee is tracking over their toe. And when I began to value my communication with someone a lot more than their alignment, it was beyond freeing for myself and I started to see better results um, as well now with my students. What was the big, what was the turning point uh, for you, Raph, when you started to apply more of an evidence-based approach? Um, well, I was an instructor, I was Stop Pilates certified and I, yep. I did Stop Pilates instructor trainer certification. So I went over to Toronto or as I say, Toronto um, and um, yep a bunch of times, four or five times and trained at Stop Ladies Head Office there and did their instructor trainer certification, did the whole certification and, you know, and so we were teaching and we were certifying instructors. We were a licensed training centre for Stop Pilates in Melbourne here in Australia and we were certifying instructors and I was teaching the courses. I was teaching mat work, you know, reform mark, head lecture and battles, yeah. injuries and special populations and, and, you know, we, just gradually we started like just adding extra stuff into the courses. So like, we, you know, we started out by like, oh, you know, students would have a bunch of questions. So we'd give them homework, you know, to do in between the course days, you know, I'll, you know, look up this thing or, you know, memorize this or answer this question or do this project or whatever, write this program. And then we, you know, we, we started adding to that and we thought, well, right, well, let's, you know, prepare them to do the homework during the session. So we started talking about the homework during the sessions and then we started adding extra things into the sessions and then we started 
the sessions were so full, we had to take some stuff out. So we took, took out some of the original Stop Pilates stuff that we didn't think was that useful, like maybe some of the more crazy oh. exercises. And there came to a certain point where a student came back to me who traveled interstate and done a different Stop Pilates course somewhere else, you know, like they did their mat work with us and then they'd reform it somewhere else or something like that. And they came back and they said to me like, gee, you know, what I learned from XYZ studio in the other state was like really different <laughs> to what I learned from you. And at that moment I realized, oh, I'm not actually teaching Stop Pilates anymore. Um, and, and so it was kind of, you know, with me, it kind of just snuck on, snuck up on me. Um, and, and I didn't really, I, I guess I kind of ignored the dissonance that I was feeling about it and just tried to kind of yeah. You know, like I, I, I wasn't consciously that aware of it and just started kind of adding in stuff to what I was teaching around the edges. But then when that student said, <laughs> said that to me, I was like, oh yeah, fuck. Like I'm really essentially, I'm trying to teach them something quite different to what's actually in the curriculum here. And at that moment I realized I yeah. couldn't, couldn't teach Stop Pilates anymore. So basically that's when we, uh, you know, ended the relationship. You know, I mean, there was a few months of planning and, negotiating whatever but we ended the relationship with stop pilates um quite amicably at least on our side i hope it's amicable on their side um and that's when we started teaching our own certification so that was probably oh. two, that was the february 2013 or 12 something like that yeah so yeah so, yeah they just go ahead well i, I want to ask you about um you know, something that I think, you know, two things that I see a lot of people struggle with, um, you know, with yeah. this sort of journey of growing beyond your initial training that you and I have both just kind of described our experience of is there are two things. The first one is there's kind of what I call the, the, the nihilistic chasm or the nihilism chasm, which is basically when you start to become aware of the research and the you know best practice in the sort of exercise science world at large, and you realise like okay, well a lot of the things that we do in Pilates you know traditionally um, are not evidence supported, like you know, you know lots of internal cues or you know cueing people a lot whilst they're moving or you know do, if, you know, fussing about people's alignment, um, stuff like that, and and so you know, posture analysis, uh, things like that. So, yep. and so it's like, all right, well, if we, <clears throat> reminds me of, you know, being a vegetarian back in the 1980s. It's like, we used to go to a restaurant and say, I'm vegetarian. It's like, they didn't know what the fuck to give you. So they just gave you like yep. meat, meat and three veg minus the meat, you know? So you just got some, you know, boiled peas and potatoes and carrots. And that was, <laughs> it's just like, they didn't know what, you know, it's like, well, what, what do you feed someone if they don't eat steak? You know, it's like, well, fuck, you know, what a crazy, crazy idea. And so I think it's a little bit like this for a lot of people when they're transitioning from this, you know, the, the way that they were taught in their original certification to being more evidence-based is like, well, what the fuck do you do? Like, if you're not cueing people all the time and fussing about their alignment, doing posture analysis, like, well, what do you do? You know, like, what do you do instead? Um, and so that, that, that's one question. And the second one is then, I think, uh, you know, it's real. I think a lot of us are really tough on ourselves, and and I think I was this way. That when you realise, like, oh shit, all of these things I'm doing, like you know, internal cueing and alignment and all this stuff, it's like they're not best practice, you know, in the in the world at large. So therefore, I've got to stop doing all of it right now and start doing everything perfectly 
right now I must only use external cues and affirm my client's autonomy and not worry about alignment and be movement fearless. And, you know, all of that is like, that's really hard if you've been teaching for a decade and you've practiced doing it one way for a decade. Yeah, yeah so, and you're going to yeah. confuse the shit out of your students. Right. So, so, so let's, talk, <laughs> let's talk about those two things. You know, what are your... What was your experience? Did you have that nihilistic kind of moment where you're like, well, fuck, what's the good of me? You know, if I'm not going to be teaching all these things, what do I do instead? Yeah. Well, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that my, my value as a teacher is that my student needs me. And so then there can be that fear is if I teach them like to, to do Pilates themselves, they don't need me anymore. And that could be uh, for my own ego. That could be financially and all the things. We want to have client retention. And so I went through that, you know, it's like, well, I don't really want them to be that good because <laughs> like, you know, I, I need to make a living right. and if all my clients leave, what do I do? Um, and so there was a self-fulfilling prophecy that I kind of went, went through. And, um, so a lot of it was fear-based. Um, I also went through the fear base of like, what if my Pilates, you know, training was right and the research is wrong and I end up hurting a lot of people. You know, I went, I went through that fear, you know, what if, what if that happens? And that's all normal. It's normal to question these things. Um, and it took, it took me like a ridiculous uh, amount of time to, to just peel back the layers. And I think, I think he made a good point that it doesn't mean you have to take a completely like a U-turn on the way that you, that you teach or facilitate movement. Um, but I started to give myself permission to just add a little bit, like just try to do something. So like a good example was like, well, what if I do add an extra spring? You know, my, my Pilates school told me two springs, but I'm going to do two and a half and I hope I don't hurt somebody. <laughs> it was like my, with my thinking at the time, you know, with, in, at the time it made sense to me, even though it doesn't make sense now. Yeah. And I just, maybe for knee stretches, I added an extra spring and I just, wanted to see what happened and my clients fucking loved it. They were like, Holy shit, my thighs. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, I'm actually like more valuable now. Or I started to not say anything for some rep for some repetitions. I would just let someone move. And I, and I just became more curious, like what would happen, you know, if I crossed the line a little bit, the line, meaning um, the line that I'd drawn for myself from my previous training and so I would maybe do the hundred and not say anything for the last 40 pumps, you know, maybe give someone like a dead, you know, like 10 more pumps to go or something. But I did, I stopped queuing every, every inch of their movement. And what I started to see was everyone was okay. Um, like nothing catastrophic, nothing catastrophic happened. Um, I, I promoted, you know, autonomy within my students. They, you know, they started to see results, but what was actually really fascinating, especially when it came to queuing was I left with so much more energy at the end of the day, because I wasn't micromanaging people all day long. So like, for example, if you're, you know, teaching and, and you're, you're instructing every part of the movement, lots of internal cues, if you use like, if you taper back and you use 25% less words throughout your week, <laughs> you're gonna have a lot more energy and that's just something that i i experienced um like i don't know if you've ever experienced that ralph like where you're i don't know teaching 10 hours a day and like by the time you're done it's like 
I don't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, I've totally been there. I've totally been there. Yeah. I mean, I it's think, like, I don't care who you are. I think I still have, you know, somewhere in the recess of my brain, you know, I could probably press the button and reel off the, you know, Stott Pilates, you know, version of how to cue knee stretches or whatever, you know, which muscles you should be activating and yeah. all the rest, you know. And, and it's just like the, 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 the thing is it's so many words and it's so tiring to <laughs> – to say all of that all it the is. time. It's, it's, it's exhausting. Like, you know, I go home, I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, but that, that started to slowly change. And, and I guess the take-home message that I'd like for anyone listening to this is that you, you don't have to abandon what you've learned in your teacher training, but you do have permission to make sensible changes. If it is that, oh, I, you know, my client, I, I noticed that there's, they used to not be able to do two, two springs and knee stretches. And now they can, and they can do like 20 reps. You know, what do I do? Well, you have permission to add another half spring or another full spring, even if it's not in your training manual. And you have permission to do that because it's evidence-based because tissue adapts to load. And over time you need to, you need to apply more load to the tissue if you want someone to continue to get stronger because a lot of times our students come to Pilates and it, when they sign on the waiver or they talk to you in like an initial intake, it's a common goal to get stronger, to build strength. And in order to do so, we should know how to facilitate strength gains. And, and that's a gap that I learned to kind of fill um, from my original Pilates training. And it goes back to just progressively, you know, adding a load. Um, yeah, and so and, you have permission. You have permission to make changes. And and when you, you know, I, lo- I love your approach. And now now that you say that, it, you know, it strikes me that that's basically what I did too. I experimented with just making little changes to the way I was teaching the stop Pilates course, and yeah, yeah. The, the heavens didn't explode or anything. It's like you know, nothing bad happened. Um, and so I made another little change, and then it's a bit slightly bigger change and a slightly bigger change. And I think what a great what a great strategy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, after you, you know, add an extra half spring in knee stretches and nothing bad happens except for your clients fucking love it and get stronger, then you add another half spring mm-hmm. and then, you know, you might work up the courage at some point to add a half spring to, say, short spine, you know, where I was always oh, told, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, no, terrible, 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 don't ever do more than two springs on a, you know, on short spine. It's like, you yeah, know, you can do two and a half springs, you can do three springs, you can do four springs, <laughs> you know, if you earn yeah, that. You can- if you earn that by gradually building up to it. Yeah. Just do two and a half before three or two and a half before four. Yeah. Um, just, you know, like you mentioned, build it up or like a good, you know, another example of that is like, well, what happens if you, um, if you let someone go beyond 90 degrees hip flexion and footwork, that was one of the things that I was taught. You had to stop at 90 degrees because yeah, we too. were confident that we could measure that. And then it's like, well, but what happens if you, you know, if you go beyond that and it's like, Oh shit, you just work into deeper hip flexion. It feels awesome. So now, like my reformer at home, I'm I'm geared in all the way. Me too. Because I want to get as deep as I can. It's, it's just, it, but that's just an example of like a sensible change. Because you learn about the hip joint, and it's like, well, what happens between ninety and ninety-three degrees? You know, yeah. does I mean, the hip pop off? It's weird what about because 95? it's Holy weird shit. because like we're taught to, in front splits, you should go as deep as possible. <laughs> you know, but but in yeah. in in footwork, for some reason, it's better to stay below 90. Yeah. And then you're, then you're, you're 
person you have, or let's say you're working with older populations and like their, their goal is independence. And part of that is, you know, sitting to stand in doing a sit to stand and you, and you learn principles like the fed principle, you know, which is specific adaptations to impose demand, meaning you'll adapt to what you're exposed to. You know, do you want to adapt to just 90 degrees hip flexion or do you want to adapt to going deeper too? Like how many options do you want to have? And just recognizing that humans will adapt to what they're, what they are exposed to for me blew my mind. And that it's like, well, yeah, go all the fucking way. Right. It's, it, it turns out that, you know, we shouldn't only work in perfect posture because if we're having like our quote unquote perfect posture, that's the only thing I prepared you for. Right. Right. And, like and I, to, I want, I want you to work hard in shitty posture. Right. And to stand up out of a sofa, you know, you've got to, start in like 110 degrees of hip flexion with a flexed spine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, 100%. It's um, like, well, what do you want to adapt to? All right. So I love that strategy of, you know, just not changing everything all at once. You know, just like make a few little experimental changes that, are, you know, feel relatively safe to you, you know, in a relatively, you know, simple and, you know, safe exercise like knee stretches where you think, okay, what's the worst that could happen if I had a half spring here? And then, you know, once, once you do that and, you know, wait for the explosion and it doesn't come, um, then, you know, you might become a bit bolder and, and, and add another half spring and then you might, you know, branch out into other exercises. And then I also love that, um, that strategy of just basically like, you know, in terms of, you know, transitioning your cueing, you know, from an internal sort of focus where you're cueing, you know, muscles and activation and breath work and focus on alignment and stuff like that to a more external focus cues where you're focusing on, you know, the movement of the carriage or the straps or the, you know, pushing the mat into the floor or whatever it might be. Uh, and also just doing less of it, you know, um, but, but that it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It's not a dichotomy. It's not either, or it can just be like, you know, go no. from doing a hundred percent internal cueing all the time to like, just t- take a break every now and then, you know, don't cue the last 40 pumps of the hundred, you know, just let them, let them keep, you know, you've cued the first 60 pumps. I think they know what they're doing now. Let them just do the last 40 pumps just all by self, you know. hundred percent. And it's just like, you know, just letting go of, like we're allowed to let go of control, you know, cause we're, we're generally working with like able bodied adults, you know, once you, once you teach them the skill, they can keep going. Um, and, and also like, if this is something new and like confronting, you know, like some, like a good strategy could be like, just pick an exercise that you want to try some external cueing with. Like maybe you just do it for footwork and then, then do what you're comfortable with for the rest of the session. Yeah. Um, or, you know, you know, just, just trying it a little bit and seeing what happens. Um, and then you, know, you, you build a tiny habit. If it goes well, you know, try it for another one. Um, but even now, like, like if you like go watch some of my masterclasses or, or stuff I put online, like there's internal cues in there, like hundred percent. Like if I want someone to like put their hand on a bar, you know, I might say grab the bar, but I might say, put your right hand on the bar. Like it makes sense. So my, so there's nothing here that's saying like, um, internal cues are bad, um, or anything like that. But if you mix in external cues and shift to more external, it's, you know, it's just been shown to provide optimal results. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, you can still help people and give internal cues, but what this is just saying is like, well, you can help even more people or optimize the results with other strategies. 
And, and like one way that I, I try, or, or one moment that I had in my, in my life was I'm reading a paper, you know, called the optimal theory of motor learning by Gabrielle Wolf and Rebecca Luthwe. And it's very different than what my Pilates training told me. One was, you know, Pilates training was internal cueing. This was talking about external. And I think about it and my, the, the Pilates trainer that I trained under had a, a BA in dance, which was awesome. She knew how to teach Pilates really well. And then like Rebecca Luthwaite and Gabrielle have like fucking PhDs and dedicate uh, much of their life to researching motor learning. So who should I take motor learning advice from? Yeah. Like the Pilates instructor, you know, my Pilates instructor or the first people who have a fucking PhD in it. You know, I, I for me, I'm going to put my money in the people that have a PhD in the, in the concept yeah. and then learn how to apply that here. Uh, and when I, when I just reframed that in my mind, you know, it, it made, for me, it, it was just a light bulb moment of this is just something that I can add on to what I already know. And I don't need to feel guilty or ashamed or like an imposter. Like I'm just learning. And then as is, as is everyone, like when you, when you know, when you know better, do better. And if, and if this is a new con, if it's a new concept, it's, it's worth investigating. Yeah. I think it's, that is so important in how you, in basically how you frame, you know, this, uh, transition as, you know, whether it's a, a threat or an opportunity and, you know, seeing it as, you know, viewing this as a marvelous opportunity to learn new things and to become even more effective and, you know, build even, you know, better results for your clients and, and, you know, better relationships with your clients, you know, is such a freeing experience, you know, like it's, it's, it's so liberating to know that actually I don't have to have all the answers for my clients, you know, I don't have to tell them what to do all the time, you know, it takes so much pressure off. It really does. Yeah. Well, like they say, like the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. So like, I've never been so comfortable in my life saying, I don't know. You know, like if you would have asked me a question, like a year out of Pilates school, I probably would have made up an answer that sounded kind of good because it was self-fulfilling and it, and it helped, it helped me believe that I knew the answers and that I was good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, just cause that, that's where I was, you know, intellectually and, and uh, just within my own self-esteem. But as I learn and I grow, it's like, well, I don't know all the answers. And, and sometimes, like, even when I'm aware of the research, you know, like, why does my low back hurt is, like, a really easy one. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, because, cause, like, we don't really know, you know, uh, and that's okay. Um, it's okay not to know all the answers, uh, whether if you're aware that science doesn't know or whether if you're not. You know, and having that, that honesty and that transparency with yourself and with your students is, is extremely valuable yeah and i think you know i think uh to to give yourself a little bit more credit there that i don't think that that was necessarily you know that sense that you needed to know all the answers i don't think that was necessarily just you know your stuff because i i think that the way that i was taught pilates and i'm pretty sure the way you were taught it as well i think most yeah the way it's taught in general it, you know, and I think this is not just Pilates, actually. This is in healthcare. This is pretty widespread in general. I think physiotherapists have the same thing, exercise physiologists. You know, that was when I did my master's. Yeah. was the same. Basically, you're, you're cast in the role of an expert fixer. 
and that, you know, you yeah. as the healthcare professional or the Pilates instructor, you know, your job is to know the answers and the client comes to you for answers and, you know, you must, you know, know everything. And so if the client says, why does my little toe hurt when I do this exercise? You need to know the answer to it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, because you need guess. Right. Um, and, and so when you don't know the answers and, you know, spoiler alert, no one knows the fucking answers. You know, it's yeah. like science doesn't know why your little toe hurts in that exercise. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, well, you just kind of learn how to pivot really well. Right. Um, so, you know, so, so you know, we're, we're casting this role of expert fixers, like, you know, we must know the answer. And then when inevitably we don't know the answer because there is no answer um, to a lot of these questions right now, uh, you yeah. know, makes us feel bad and that makes us feel like imposters and like we don't, you know, we... You know, we haven't understood something that everyone else seems to understand, but it's like no one fucking understands it. You know, everyone's just faking it. And, and, mm-hmm. and the, you know, once you actually, you know, allow yourself to let go of that mindset of I, I, I'm the expert fixer and I need to know all the answers and recast yourself in this role of, which is much more evidence-based, and we'll talk about this in a sec, I think, with the whole person framework, uh, recast yourself in the role of, a collaborator with the client. Yep. Uh, so, you know, you don't need to know the answers. You work with the client to help the client find the answers or together you discover the answers. Then suddenly yeah. all the pressure's off you. A hundred percent. Like you don't need to know why, why their knee hurts in a squat, but you can, I mean, we already do it, but it's just, I mean, we just call it symptom modification. Um, it's like, all right, well, your squats hurt when your legs are together and you squat what does it feel like if we go a little bit wider? Like what if we, what if we do, what if we just do squats in like seven different ways? And then, then you ask someone how it feels. Uh, They tell you the answer. And then you ask them like, well, what if we do it that way? How's that sound to you? And then they're like, yeah, I want to do it that way. I want to be turned out or whatever for them. And, And it's not like, like I didn't provide them the answer. I just, gave them permission to explore what feels good and what doesn't. And then they got to make the decision. And so that's just an example of like it when someone for that example, you don't need to tell someone why their knee hurts, but you can just, you know, give them permission to give movement options and figure out what works on that day and time, uh, you know, for an individual. Right. But meaning that just collaborating with the human, you know, Right, but the the thing that uh, you know, and absolutely, that's the pro- approach that I endorse. But I think yeah. that you know the the part of me that is imagining you know, or trying to remember what it was like, you know, when I was making this kind of you know transition from thinking in the way that I've been taught in my certification to thinking as an evidence based practitioner and, and using a whole person approach and using a collaborative approach is, okay, right, so someone's knee hurts when they squat, so you say, oh, well, it hurts when you squat this way, let's try some different ways to squat, see if there's a way that doesn't hurt, okay, why don't you try it with your legs further apart, closer together, more turned out, less turned out, whatever it might be, and then they find a way, they're like, oh, yeah, this way feels good, and you're like, okay, great, let's do it that way, and then the person says, so why does this one feel better, and all of a sudden, I feel this massive pressure, like, oh, I've got to explain, because you're activating your VMO more, and that's medially, you know, it's pulling the patella and that's offloading the blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know. And your big toe's different. Right. Um, and, and the reality is, 
you know, right now, no, I would just shrug and go, you know what? I've got no fucking clue. But let's just keep doing it this way, eh? Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh, same here. It's it just, you know, you know, I don't know. And, and, and sometimes I'll, you know, give like a comparative norm and I'll be like, yeah, you know, some days on, on my body, like my knees hurt when I go that way. So I just change it up for the day. Yeah. And you know what? Like next time you come in, like we'll try in both ways again and just see if it's a little different. Mm. Uh, sometimes like their knees are hurting because they have something going on at home or they didn't have, they didn't have a good sleep uh, or countless other reasons. Like I really don't know. But what's important to, to kind of extract from this is that one, we don't know like why their knees hurt and that's okay. Cause, cause uh, no one probably knows. And also that it may not be due to their biomechanics. You know, it may, it may not be due like like their tissue health or their alignment. It could just be like some psychosocial factor that, that they just have things going on today. Right. You know, they have some anxiety They're you know, their, their kids didn't fucking do their homework and now, you know, <laughs> manifesting in their body. I don't know. Right. Um, but maybe they get better sleep. Maybe that, maybe that's what they need. Yeah. And sometimes, and sometimes people's, you know, central nervous system, their pain system just becomes kind of sensitized to certain positions or certain movements, you know, and it's sort of that position, yeah. you know, triggers a pain response. And it's like for no apparent reason, you know, that we understand currently. And, you know, sometimes I would share that with a client, you know, if they were like, oh, you know, if I said, I, I just got yeah. no fucking clue. And they were like, yeah, no, that's not, that, that answer's not satisfactory. Then, I, you know, I would say something along the lines of, well, sometimes our pain system can just become kind of sensitized to certain positions, you know, for no apparent reason. Sometimes it can be if you're kind of run down or stressed, haven't been sleeping well, or, you know, other, you know, maybe there's some systemic inflammation in your body due to various reasons, you know, that are unrelated to your, the way that you move. But, you know, sometimes a certain positions can become painful, right? And so you know, when that when that happens, it's good to just move in a different way so it's a bit less painful. And then after a while, you know, it generally settles down and you can go back to moving whatever way you want. A hundred percent. Or even like, you know, have a dialogue with them to see like, oh, is it tolerable? Like to go into that pain a little bit, you know, d- depending on, you know, if it's something that's persistent or it just kind of happened today. Like right. if someone always kind of has, you know, has some knee pain or some, or let's say someone always has back pain. Like that's a good one. Um, you know, we, we can also have value in, in teaching them that it's okay, you know, to work within a pain threshold, you know, and, and that's where you collaborate with your students. Um, and we utilize, uh, how do you say it? Like language, like the pain system and whatnot. And, and that is okay that, that they experience pain during exercise and that pain doesn't mean injury. Mm. And that just because they, they live their life, let's say hypothetically, you know, under like five out of 10 pain on a pain scale, that if they experience five out of 10 pain or seven out of 10 pain in an exercise, it's okay. As long as they're okay with it, as long as, long as it's tolerable for them. Yeah. Uh, and, and just because a lot of times we we may feel this way within ourselves or with others that if there's pain, that means tissue damage is either happening or it's already happened. And just distinguishing the the two is is, is can be extremely empowering, especially when we have when we have like let's say a client or a student that's worked with a practitioner that has had them avoid pain, so they avoid exercise as a result. Um, and then they don't get the secondary and tertiary benefits, you know, from meeting something like exercise guidelines. 
so even just the concept of poking in the pain and distinguishing it from pain and injury can be extremely valuable. Right. And I think that can be really empowering for instructors and people listening to this podcast as well, because, you know, it's, I think it's, it's uh, a common you know, concern because uh, we, you know, people who become Pilates instructors, you know, we care about other people and that's why we get into this, you know, career because yeah. we want to help people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to watch somebody, you know, move and, you know, for that movement to be painful and, you know, for us to tell them to move in a certain way, you know, do a squat or do a lunge or do a push up or whatever. And then they say, oh, that hurts my elbow. You know, it's hard for us to kind of just go, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it, suck it up, you'll be right. Um, and I, I you know, I, I wouldn't say it in a cavalier way, like I just <laughs> said it then, but <laughs> I would engage in a dialogue, like you said, you know, can you tolerate it, you know? that kind of thing. Um, but you know, I think it can be hard for us to stand by and sort of be okay with a client being in, you know, in discomfort or pain. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a lot of people have expressed to me a concern about, well, how do I know if it's not an, you know, how can you tell it's not an injury, you know? Um, and so, you know, what's your rule of thumb that if, you know, if I'm doing, you know, whatever exercise in your class. And I say, oh, Adam, this hurts my blah, blah, blah body part. You know, how would you, you know, what would you give, what would give you confidence that it wasn't an injury, that it was just, you know, some kind of pain system oversensitization? Yeah, well, well, one, one place to start is to recognize how tissues get injured, right? Like mechanisms of injury and the, the cool kids would call it MOI, like in the literature. So people tend to get in, well, one, people tend to get injured in like fitness facilities by like tripping on shit and um, stubbing their toe, you know, things like that. Um, but in, in regards to an exercise itself, you know, if someone were to get injured, it might be like uh, too much too soon. Uh, like your individual who hasn't been exercising um, but then comes in and does an unlimited membership. So they're taking, you know, seven classes a week all of a sudden. Or like a thing, like a trauma. Uh, like that's like in Pilates, I think like the only trauma I can really think of is like the push-through bar situation. Uh, like someone let's go to the push-through bar and a piece of wood hits you in the face. Or imagine if you like, trip over a reformer and, or you, you know, you're, yeah. doing, you're doing front splits with no hands and or, you know, Russian squats totally. or something, you know. But basically, yeah, fall off the equipment. it's going to involve falling off the equipment, right? Yeah, I don't think, but it doesn't have to do with your pelvic toe, right? And and but sometimes we associate it with like the the low back is like you're in lumbar extension, so like your low back's dropping in a plank, and you get a pain system, a pain symptom, right? Like that that wouldn't really fall into a category of like mechanism of injury. I mean, mechanism of injury just means how people get hurt. So it's not too much too soon. It's not a traumatic event. So I have a peace of mind that I'm not causing an injury, but then I also like am a good person and I want them to, to not be in pain, you know, if possible. Uh, but I don't have that underlying anxiety that I once had of they're going to bulge a dip and like they're done for after, after this plank, like life over is, you know, it's just, it's just not the case anymore. So, so with that, um, if they were just, if, if they were just simply in class, I'm not, not worried about that. If they come in and they, and they come in and they have like a, a symptom, you know, like, ah, my knee's hurting. Right. 
uh, I want to ask them, you know, did they have like a recent trauma? Like, did he just fall off a bike? You know, is it bruising? So I would screen for red flags, for example. And if red, someone does have red a flags, sorry, just red flags being signs and yeah. symptoms that are, you know, appear as kind of garden variety, you know, body aches and pains, but can be also associated with more uh, medically serious things like, so, you know, your knee pain could be that you, you know, bumped your knee into the coffee table, or it could be uh, that you have uh, damaged your lumbar, your spinal cord and uh you you know you're getting like yeah. pain, pain in the leg because the there's a there's a nerve in your back that's that's being irritated but uh yeah so so red flags are sort of uh we try and distinguish like okay is the pain in the knee just kind of garden variety knee pain or is it something you know medically serious yeah like you you can no longer feel your toes or move anything underneath your knee like <laughs> That's a red flag for a spinal cord injury. Right. Or right? if you've lost control of your um, bladder or something like that. Yes. A hundred percent. Or like it, or, or someone fell on their arm, right? Um, Cause they tripped on the sidewalk and they can't move their arm and it's black and blue and they're an 84 year old man. That's a, that's a red flag for a fracture. So, so the red flags is just, you know, seeing if there's more, something more serious that's going on. Um, that's pretty rare, you know, to show up to a Pilates class and be positive for a red flag like that. But it's possible. Meaning if you're, if you like literally, if you're having a spinal cord injury and you can't move your leg underneath your knee, you're probably not walking into the Pilates studio to jump in a reformer class. But it could happen. Um, but sometimes people come in with injuries, right? Like, like they, they have a legitimate injury. Like let's say um, someone comes in and they have, our classic one in Pilates is like someone has a bulging desk, right? We're like, oh, like uh, in the Pilates industry or in my or in my original training, I would I would be alarmed by that. And then they're like, yeah, you know, it's bulging disc from five years ago. And and before I would really be alarmed by that, but knowing or what's helpful to recognize is what tissue healing times are. Uh, like tissue healing times would be the amount of time it takes for a tissue to heal. So something like that's connected tissues, such as a, a, a disc or a better example might be like an ACL, like a ligament, you know, that's 12 to 18 months. So are you within that tissue healing time or not? Cause if you're, or maybe an ACL is a better example than a bulging disc, but like maybe you're five years out of an ACL reconstruction. I'm not worried about hurting your ACL because that tissue is healed. Whereas if you come into my class and you're six months out of reconstruction, that tissue is not healed yet. So then I'd be more cautious with what we're doing and, and confirm that you're cleared by an allied health professional. Um, bone, you know, bones, another tissue that could be injured. If someone comes in, they had a broken leg and it was, you know, that's six to eight weeks for your healing time. You know, if you're three weeks out, uh, that's good to know that that, that leg you know, the femur is not healed yet. Uh, another common one is like muscle strain. And someone's like, ah, strain my, my hamstring, you know, six, six months ago. That hamstring's healed. Like, it's like that's like muscle uh, tissue healing time is three to six weeks. So if you're outside of that window, I'm not concerned about hurting the, the hamstring itself, but I am but I do acknowledge that there's, 
that that tissue might be sensitive, right? And then we, I can work within the pain tolerance and collaborate with that student to, to push into that pain if they want to, if they're willing to, or to not. Whereas if they were like a week and a half out of a hamstring strain, like I don't, I, you know, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't go for like one leg, one legged bridges on like no sprint. Yeah. <laughs> Three former, you're like a week out of a hamstring strain. Like, it's not going to happen. And so I, point being, you know, if someone, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I remember um, when I was in my, the first few years of my teaching, I had a client who'd had a fractured pelvis and she had some kind of terrible motor vehicle accident, fractured her pelvis in multiple places. And she had chronic, you know, low back and pelvic pain. And this was, you know, multiple years, you know, like 15 years after the accident. Uh, and I remember, you know, vividly, you know, being terribly fearful of, you know, hurting, you know, damaging her, you know, as I saw yeah. at the time in you know, a fragile pelvis. And, and I had a really, at the time, I didn't really understand the anatomy. I mean, I had a vague picture of like of the pelvis was fractured, but, you know, I, it, it didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me that like broken bones heal by regeneration in six to eight weeks, you know, like, and, a, and a, yep. a, a broken bone heals, like it doesn't form a scar. It actually forms new bone tissue. So a, a, a healed yeah, fracture, stronger. it's literally as good as a new one, you know? <laughs> um, and, and <laughs> yep. so, so like, you know, this woman had, you know, very genuine, you know, persistent pelvic and low back pain, um, that, you know, uh, was a sequelae or, you know, a consequence of that accident, but, but she didn't, you know, now I know in hindsight, she didn't have a fragile you know, pelvis, you know, her pelvis was a hundred percent bulletproof, just the same as anybody else's. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I vividly remember that. And, and once I understood tissue healing times, I was like, Oh fuck, you know, if you had a broken arm five years ago, you know, it would be healed by now. So why am I worried about yeah. this broke five year old or 15 year old, whatever broken pelvis. And, so, yeah, and so tissue, tissue healing times, I think, are, you know, a really empowering thing to understand. And if you want to oh, understand, yeah. if you want to understand tissue healing times, go buy my book. It's $5. <laughs> so that's not how I'm becoming a millionaire. It's pretty happy investment. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a whole uh, chapter on tissue healing times and explains everything you need to know. So, all right. So let's talk, yeah. let's talk about, um, uh, you know, the, what you do as a evidence-based instructor, um, that is, uh, you know, like, so that th we're moving from this, you know, um, I guess more directive approach to instructing where it's like us telling the client, you know, stuff all the time, you know, contract this muscle, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you know, we're moving towards a more collaborative approach where we, work with the client, we invite, we suggest, we coach, we give permission, all of these things. And we, together we discover what, you know, what's going to work best and what the, what, you know, what the solution is for that particular person. So, you yeah. know, that, that all sounds, you know, highfalutin and everything, but so what does that look like? So if a client comes, you know, so, so for most of the instructors out there listening to this, I'm imagining they already have regular clients, right? So I've got regular clients that have been seeing me for weeks, months, or years already. And so if I've been teaching Mary, you know, with a whole bunch of internal cues and postural references and whatever for like five years, and all of a sudden, you know, how do I, how do I transition my existing clients to, you know, a different yeah. way of, of thinking and teaching? 
Well, what's important to that client, right? Like, like what are what are their their fitness goals? Because client A is going to look a lot different than client B. Uh, meaning, one individual may be um, doing Pilates because they want to reduce their low back pain or something like that, right? They like they like they like Pilates and they want to reduce pain. So, like their goal is is to reduce pain scale. Um, whereas like another individual may be coming and doing Pilates because they want to get better at a sport, right? Maybe someone wants to play with their grandkids. Playing with the grandkids is a pretty good one. So for me, I would tailor that session or my time with them to, to playing with the grandkids. So the exercises that I choose for that individual are going to look like activities to play with their grandkids. And it's even better if it's something that they once couldn't do, right? Let's say someone comes in and they can't play with their grandkids or they can't do it easily. And then you practice, you know, you know, you practice your footwork and your feet and straps and all your scooters and all that. But eventually I'm going to practice with them getting on the floor and getting off of the floor and all of those things and relate all of our activities back to whatever is meaningful for that person. And it may be a specific activity like getting off the floor, or it may just be like freaking exercising and, and feeling better, having more energy throughout the day. Essentially, I do, I tailor the sessions to a client centered care. What's important to them because they may not care about their scapular position, but I look at it and I'm like, that scapular dyskinesis, we're going to solve that. It's air quotes, by the way. Um, <laughs> but they don't care. Like, that's not meaningful to them. What's meaningful to them is why they come into your studio. What, what are their, their um, physical goals that they want to achieve? And, and a lot of times it is a physical goal. Um, sometimes they just like coming in. Like I work with an older adult. Um, he's 87 years old, legally blind and comes in with a walker. He, he likes to come in one. He wants to live longer <laughs> and that's what he told me. And he wants to be able to get out of a chair. Right. And he also just likes being social. He's a social guy, but he lives by himself. So every time we meet, I make, I make it a conscious effort to have conversations with them. Cause that's what he wants. Like he, he likes being social. You know, like that's part of my treatment with him is just like, how you doing? You know, and just like making jokes, you know, he likes to laugh, but he's, you know, but he's, he's, he's alone and he's, you know, his partner has passed away and all the things. So it's so just working with human in that way. But then, uh, you know, we do like exercises that are, I mean, I'd probably do like 10% Pilates with him and like 20%, like, like 90% other things. Um, because I need to do things that look like getting out of a chair for him. Mm. And then that's what we work on. We work on movements that look like that and we do sit to stands and I assist him. And, and last week I actually didn't have to assist him. He got out of a chair. Oh yeah. He said it was the best session he ever had. And I said, good. Awesome. Next week I'm, yeah, I'm handing my kettlebell next week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I'll get out of bed with a bag. So point being is like that, that looks very different than, like a busy, like executive with kids, like she's probably not here for, for social time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> probably has a lot of noise in her head, you know, wants to just she move wants and have maybe physical goals. 
yeah, this is going to look different, but that's, that's why I love teaching. I love teaching movement because it's, it's, it doesn't always look the same. It's client centered and that's going to be unique to each, to each client that I work with. Mm. Um, so that's, that's where I come up on that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, basically, you can't go wrong just focusing on the client's goals and eliciting those goals and working towards them. Um, another another yeah. uh, thing that I really like in terms of uh, transitioning your existing clients, so you've been working with clients a certain way, uh, whether this in a group class yeah. format or whether it's in one-on-one or duets or whatever, is, um, I, and I love this strategy um, for a number of reasons. So basically, I would say to the client at the start of a session or even at the end of a session, hey, you know, Mary, I've been thinking about you. Um, and you know, I've been thinking about your, you know, insert goal here, you know, so your back pain or your desire to get to get out of a chair or your gardening or your wanting to play with your grandkids or whatever. Okay. I've been thinking about you and how you want to play with your grandkids. And, you know, I've got a few ideas of things I'd like to try with you to help you get there. You know, would you be open to trying some new things? And so I love this for a number of reasons. One is because it says, you're telling the client that you've been thinking of them outside of class time. And I think that's one of the most powerful things you can say to a client is like, Hey, I was thinking about you the other day. Right. And I was thinking about this goal that you told me about and I was, you know, mulling over how we could get you there. Um, And so the second thing, reason I love this approach is because it's asked the client's permission to try some new things. Right. So basically you're affirming their autonomy, putting them in the driver's seat of of the whole process. And, you know, I mean, I've never had a client say anything, but like, like, oh, wow, I can't believe you were thinking of me. Of course, I'd like to try some new things, you know. Um, and then you can just, try, yeah. you know, try, 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 you know, some of the things that we've talked about here in, in today's uh, conversation or, you know, some other sort of strategies that we've, you know, that you've learned from the podcast or from other places. Um, you know, maybe adding another half spring in knee stretches or, you know, changing your foot position in the squats if your knee hurts or, or, or just working through the pain if you're able to put up with it. Um, uh, you know, so just try some of the things that we've we've talked about, but first ask your client's permission. And um, if if you can relate it to their specific goal, the reason they came in, um, so much the better. And and if you're not sure what your client's goals were, like I've I've been in this situation as well, where I you know I did initial assessments with my clients when they first came in, but then like two years later, they've been coming in twice a week for two years. It's like they've well and truly achieved that first goal, but it's like we never really had another assessment session. <laughs> so now we're just kind of yeah you know, every day they'd come in, I'd just go, oh yeah, so what do you want to do today sort of thing? Um, but you know, yeah. I think it's also great to go back to that client and go, you know what, Mary, I've been thinking about you. We, you know, we set those goals when you first started, we've well and truly achieved those now. What would, how would you feel about, you know, sitting down together next time you come in and discussing what, what goals you might like to work towards now, you know? And again, 100%. what, what client's going to say, no, I don't want to work towards a goal. I want to just keep aimlessly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> going through the motions. Yeah. In something to even ask, like that, that I've asked before, you know, when someone's been coming in for three years, just ask them what what makes you continue to come back here to Pilates. Like we've been working together for three years, what brings you back? Uh, the answers that I've heard from that, like I thought I was going to hear, like, oh, my hamstring strength, oh, my pelvic alignment. Like when I was, you know, in that frame of mind. What people tended to tell me were more psychosocial factors. They're like, I just like coming. It feels good. Um, you're nice, right? Like you, you let me move. And it could be really interesting to just see, like anyone who's listening, if you just ask current students that question, see how they interpret it mm-hmm. and see 
why they feel like they are coming back. Mm. Um, in addition to everything that, that Ralph has expressed. Great. So, I mean, we said we we're going to talk about the whole person framework and we didn't really sort of line up the topic, but I think we actually did talk about the whole person framework, which is really, that's the framework that we use in the diploma and that the framework that's in my book, which you can buy for $5 in the show notes. And uh, basically is just an evidence-based way of working with a whole person. So working with their, you know, their goals, their thoughts, their beliefs, their expectations, their emotions, and their physical capacity. Um, and, you know, rather than just thinking of them as a body, thinking of them as a whole person and, you know, collab- working in collaboration with that person rather than directing the body as, you know, so many of us were taught in our original um, certification. So, yeah, is there anything you want to add to that, Adam? Have I missed anything? Uh, no. No, this has been an incredible conversation and uh, I appreciate the opportunity and I hope it was insightful um, for any of the listeners. Yeah, likewise, right back at you. Um, you know, I think mutual appreciation moment. Um, and, yeah. you know, like I think that, you know, one of the core kind of values, you know, underpinning the reason why I do this podcast and is because, you know, it, it's about building a community. And I know that's like, you know, it's yep. kind of a weird community because, you know, out there in the Pilates stratosphere, you can hear us, but we can't hear you <laughs> unless you, <laughs> unless you DM me on social media, um, in which case I can hear you and I'd love, love to hear from you. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so many people feel I think have that, have that same experience that you described, which I also had, which was feeling like I'm the fucking weirdo here because I'm questioning these things and everyone else seems to be totally fine with it. You know, so what's wrong with me that this doesn't make sense to me. Um, and, and, and so we, you know, one, I think one of the greatest, you know, services that we try to perform is we try and actually just call those things out and go, Hey, no, you're not the only one. <laughs> lots of people, <laughs> lots of people yeah, are worrying it, about, are wondering about this. It, yeah, and so so it's it's, I think you know that's why I'm I'm so grateful for this conversation and others like it and the fact that you know this has been great for me personally as well because this podcast is actually one of the things that brought you you know into breathe education and it's like so it's, it goes both ways right? so you listen to the podcast and go yeah. oh fuck like yeah I'm not the only one and then you reach out to <laughs> us and I'm like oh fuck. I'm not the only one, you know, Adam, Adam thinks the same way. <laughs> yep. A hundred percent. And yeah, it's, you know, whoever you know, identifies with that, like you're not alone and you're not wrong for feeling that way. It's like, Oh, I'm the only one. Uh, I've been there, you know, in, in making, making changes and adapting, you know, your own knowledge and your teaching is not a stab at any of your previous instruction. It's, it's just additive. Yeah. It's things that you can add to what you already know. Um, Cause I, like if you talk to me in five years, I hope I know more than what I know right now. And I hope I'm teaching better uh, than what I am teaching now because, you know, teaching is an art and it, and it's, you know, we learn the science, but we, we, we build it up to an art and, and that it can never be perfect. There's always more to learn. And I'm, I'm looking forward to like continuing to learn, you know, as long as I can. Great attitude, Adam. Cognitive agility on display. Boom. For the win. Good talk. Yeah, good talk. See ya.
after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.